Tercy hung his head in the doorway. Lazady says she's transferring the coordinates of someone who might have more information on the warlord. Talon looked up and assessed his crew member's face. What's the catch? She can't get in touch with them to tell them we're coming, and she thinks they're the type who might not be all that glad to see dragons. Also, Tercy's voice was forcedly casual, the guy who might know the information we need is kind of their prisoner. Talon resisted the urge to beat his head against the desk. How about we follow up on other leads while she tries to get a bead on them? She said you'd ask that. Tercy crossed his arms and leaned in the doorway of the grimace. Apparently, he's scheduled to be executed. You're fucking kidding me. Not so much. You see, apparently he really likes kids. Oh. Talon gave him a look. Oh, I see. Well, perhaps if we explain we have no problem with them killing him, we just want to interrogate him first. You know, painfully. I mean, we can try. Tercy lifted his shoulders. Also, not everyone likes kids, you know. Why don't you like kids? Talon had given up on having children of his own. The idea was ridiculous. But he'd always been fond of his brother's children. He liked bringing them souvenirs from places he'd been, including a massive hunk of Vorican sapphire he'd picked up during a shootout in a mine. His brother and sister-in-law had yet to figure out that that was real. He was anticipating that call with amusement. They're tiny little terrorists, Tercy said flatly. Hell-bent on destruction, their own included. Don't you remember being a kid? Talon shut his mouth on the question of whether Sphinx wanted kids. He was, after all, still pretending he didn't know about the two of them. Ah, he said. Well, I'll trust you all to get the ship where it needs to be. I'll prepare a first communication and tell Nix to get any information she can in the war room. I'll be along in a bit to start planning. Tercy saluted and left, whistling. Satomi Kruger fingered the hooked bridge of her nose and jiggled her foot anxiously. In her past life as a smuggler, she had learned one very important truth. Morals didn't pay. It was all well and good to want to help the world, but if you stopped to help every wounded duck you met, you'd find yourself beggared within months. Also, potentially in jail, if not executed outright. It didn't take a genius to figure out that the people in power weren't always the ones who deserved to be in power. Helping the downtrodden was often a shockingly unpopular move with the people who commanded armies and ran cities. The world wasn't perfect, but there was no way for any one person to fix it. You got by, and you did what you could not to aid and abet the bad guys, and you accepted that there was only so much you could change the world. Yes, at the ripe old age of 32, she had already been jaded and aloof, world-weary, and thinking herself very wise. Then, after one too many nights drinking away the stab of guilt as she turned away deserving clients, and one too many mornings that compounded the guilt with a raging hangover, why did she never learn? She had chucked that piece of wisdom out the window and started using her talents for the good guys. The lost causes. The wounded ducks. The people who didn't have money or, frankly, a shot in hell of making their dreams a reality. Smuggling, running information, helping people escape. Whatever you needed, Satomi Kruger was one of the people who got it for you. What happens now is in the hands of God, she had told innumerable people, but I've done what I can to give you a shot. In the decade and a half since, she'd learned that the good guys lay on a spectrum of gray she would never have anticipated. Fighting against evil, it turned out, didn't make someone good by default. There were a lot of opinions on what exactly was permissible when fighting evil regimes. There were jobs she regretted completing. Innocents who had died because of what she had done. 
More than once, she had considered packing it all up and going back to being the person who sneered at revolutionaries and used her extra money for booze. But the memory of how her soul felt when she turned people away, desperation in their eyes and death stalking close behind, kept her going. So she got smarter, and she learned to recognize the fanatical gleam that said someone didn't really care so much about freeing people or doing the right thing as they did about making the people in power hurt. Those people she turned away. Which meant that by any measure, this job should be one she would take. If anyone had pure motives and basically no downside, it was the resistance movement on Emir. Lord knew they were suffering, and the warlord killed them indiscriminately whether or not they rebelled. But the thought of helping them was reminding her just how true the adage about morals not paying really was. Never had she been so sure that completing a job was the right thing to do, and yet never had she been so sure that getting these weapons would result in incredible amounts of death for those who wielded them, for those who fought the revolutionaries, and those who were caught in the crossfire. That was the problem with fighting for freedom, of course. It invariably happened in the immediate vicinity of innocent bystanders. Never had she completed a job where the odds were so stacked against the people she was trying to help. What she was doing would be of so little help, once weighed against the warlord's might, that she felt bad accepting money for it. They were going to die, and die horribly. But it was that or die horribly in the mines. She squeezed her eyes shut and had the thought that it would have been nice to be born in an era where morals weren't quite so confusing or demanding of quick action. Had there ever been such an era? And, to add to the fact that once these people got weapons, they were going to have a snowball's chance in hell, what was going to happen if the warlord and his cronies found out there were weapons going to Emir? They would kill everyone before there was even a chance to use the guns Satomi was providing. But she knew the truth. The people who shouldn't know about this deal almost certainly already did. By the time the call got to her, other people would be in motion. If the resistance on Emir wanted to strike... She needed to get them weapons as fast as she possibly could. She looked up and saw that she'd been thinking long enough for her computer to go into low power mode. She met the gaze of her own reflection and set her jaw. It's now or never, Kruger. What happens now is in the hands of God. They waited in one of the smaller caves, Stefan and Samara trying to be calm, the newer members clearly trying to follow their lead, and Aitan in the corner, white-faced and shaking. Well, at least he wasn't screaming. That was something. They had to wait. It had taken them a day and a half to make their way back to Io District, and they still had to wait to get back to their homes. It was impossible to tell if the roads were being watched, and the only way to have even a fighting chance of not being noticed on the security cameras would be to wait until a shift change and blend into the crush of people. That was still three hours away. Do you think they'll get the weapons? Stefan asked finally. Samara looked over at him incredulously. No! She had opened her mouth to say the word before she remembered the younger ones watching them. She closed her mouth and considered. Stefan, however, had seen the answer in her eyes. They might. You don't know. But I do know. Samara leaned her head back against the wall. If anyone was coming to help us, they would have already done it. It was foolish to try to call off planet. Maybe people have been working to help us all along, one of the younger members said. Samara stared at her and tried to remember the woman's name. Merit? Maria? Something with an M. Whatever her name, she clearly saw the sadness in Samara's eyes, 
and rejected it outright. We don't know what's happening beyond Emir, she said almost defiantly. It could be anything. They could be readying an invasion. It's been 40 years, Samara said quietly. And now their dragons come to help the warlord. The Alliance won't help us. Doesn't have to be the Alliance, does it? There are other people. The people we called weren't on an Alliance outpost. She was speaking about a world she didn't understand in the least. A government that had never cared about her. People who traveled to and fro without the warlord's guards watching them. People who had never been inside the mines in their life. And it gave her hope. Once, it had given Samara hope, too. Listen to me, she said quietly. I want you to have hope. I want you to do what you can to help us win. But you can't ever pin your hopes on people off-planet. If they haven't tried to help us, then we're on our own. If they have and it hasn't worked, then we might as well be on our own. It's all the same. She held up a hand to stave off the protest. It's fine to hope, but we have to come up with a plan that doesn't rely on them. There's one person who would help us. Stefan's voice was quiet. He stared at Samara. Who? She frowned. Aaron. No, Samara said flatly. For God's sake, of all the people in the world who could get us weapons, no! Why the fuck not? He threw the challenge down at her, and Samara swallowed convulsively. Because she doesn't know, she said finally. What? She doesn't know what Elion does for a living. Samara was shaking. We only found out a few days before she was supposed to leave, and we decided not to tell her. Stefan's jaw dropped open. You mean to tell me... He tapped his fingers together as his voice trailed off. You mean to say she's married to the man who supplies the warlord with weapons and she doesn't know that? Yes. It seemed a hopelessly inadequate answer. But that was all she had. How could you not tell her? What was I supposed to do? Literally anything else. Samara dropped her head into her hands. She had received a message from Aaron just the other day, and she had not answered it. She had done that too many times since the other woman left, half from guilt, half due to the fact that every time she thought about Aaron, it hurt. Samara, if she finds out on her own, Believe me, he's not going to tell her. Samara gave a bitter laugh. Stefan looked stricken. Does he know she was in the resistance? No. I mean, he can't. If he did, well, then the warlord would know and Aaron's family would... I mean... Samara's voice stuttered to a stop. No, she said finally. He'd never have married her if he knew, right? And the warlord would never have let her go. But if you were him, her husband, I mean... You wouldn't tell her, would you? He actually loved her. Stefan snorted. The man's a mass murderer. Say what you want, he loved her. And maybe, just maybe, that made her a bit too sympathetic to him. He's not going to risk telling anyone from Emir that he supplies the warlord with weapons. Even we only found out by accident. They're married, he has to tell her something. Yes, and a man who supplies weapons could never possibly come up with a lie. Come on, Stefan. Samara, his voice ached. What if she finds out? 
Samara rubbed at her forehead. And she will, Stefan added. Someday she will. Shouldn't we use her? Shouldn't we try to get her to help us? I don't want her coming back just to be in danger. Jacinta didn't want us in danger either. His gaze was sad. But she knew it wasn't her choice to make for us. And it's not your choice to make for Aaron. Just like it wasn't your choice to make not to tell her who Elion was. It wasn't your choice to make. And he turned his head away. And their little group spent the rest of their three hours in silence. The intel was unambiguous. Alone in his office, Alexander Soros stared at the stack of briefs before him and tried to formulate his thoughts. The number of weapons deals taking place across the Allied systems had spiked within the past 48 hours. That was not a matter that was up for debate. Nor was it a matter up for debate that many of the weapons were reported to be for Emir. One must always follow the money. It was a fact of politics, warfare, and the world in general that nothing happened without money. Weapons were no different. Therefore, the weapons were being paid for. There was one resource on Emir that was worth any money, two if you counted the workforce, Soros did not, and one man controlled that. Which meant... Soros pushed himself up to pace. The black market was a thorn in the side of any political leader. It squeezed through the blocks they so carefully tried to make between society and chaos. In this case, it gave weapons to those who should not have them, who thought they had some god-ordained right to slaughter their enemies. The market supplied. The market found a way. The black market, following absolutely impartial and unimpeachable logic, created chaos. But he had chaos at his beck and call as well. He pressed a buzzer and waited until his aide, a young man so pale he fairly glowed in the evening light that slanted through the windows, came in almost silently. About the briefs you sent along. Soros did not look around. The man waited. Soros stared out into the square. Chaos swirled there as well. It was the sort of chaos that came from not knowing just how dangerous life could be. A thought for another time. He turned to the boy and gave a short nod. Send a list of targets to the dragons. Emir had been teetering on the brink of anarchy for years. Whatever he thought of Talon Rift's capabilities, he was not going to throw several thousand weapons into the mix. Tercy and Sphinx are one of my favorite romances of the series. They're adorable together, and they help Talon see that he might want something romantic, even if it's not exactly what they have. We also get to meet Satomi, who intersects in a very interesting way with someone else's storyline. I won't say who just yet. You'll have to keep listening to find out. But to be serious, one thing I like is that she, like many characters in the Dragon Corps, has not always been on one side or had moral clarity. I don't want people reading these books to think, well, the hero always does the right thing, and I don't, so clearly I'm not a hero. I think that people forge their own morals in part by figuring out when they've failed themselves and Satomi is one of those people. And we've found out something critical about Eren, namely that she has no idea what Elion does for a living. Let's just be honest here that Stefan is right, and this wasn't Samara's decision to make. Luckily, that's not the only thing Samara is wrong about. Someone has heard her message, and... Oh, Alexander Soros is doing exactly the thing Talon and Samara were worried he would do. Samara needs those weapons to get the resistance kickstarted, Tal needs allies on Emir, and Soros has Terra. 
On the other hand, Terra has proven to be a bit of a loose cannon from Soros's point of view. And my goodness, this should be interesting. Until next week. <laughs>